Billy Piper, Patrick Lacey, S.E. Howard, Waylon Jordan, and Jeremy Herbert. Five acclaimed authors of horror and dark fiction. Their twisted tales appeared in the acclaimed horror anthology Worst Laid Plans from Grindhouse Press. Now, their tales of vacation terror are coming to the big screen in a feature film adaptation from Genre Blast Films. Five acclaimed genre filmmakers will bring these stories to life. Samantha Koyesnik, John Hale, Vanessa Yonta Wright, Michael Escobedo, and Jeremy Herbert. Worst Laid Plans. Now crowdfunding on Indiegogo. This is one vacation you'll be dying to take. <laughs> Deadhead Space, now a part of the Silver Shamrock Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock, as well as Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. We have currently uh, one episode out, that is Brian Keene's Ghoul, episode two, where me, Ken McKinley, and Brennan LaFaro go over Robert Block's Psycho. It's for people that haven't read the book, and then we make it very clear when we're jumping into spoilers. So it's for anyone that's read it, anyone that is interested in reading those books. So uh, check that out sometime. You can find us on Apple Podcasts as well as all the other shows, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes YouTube. That's right. You can now watch your favorite episodes, including this one. Just search for Dead Headspace. And before we go into the conversation, I have uh, finally tried the coffee that Silver Shamrock has with their box sets. They come with books by Silver Shamrock, as well as as horror-themed coffees. Uh, The one that I tried was jelly donut flavored. I don't like jelly donuts, but this is it's it's pretty good. Uh, Ken McKinley, unfortunately, does not pay me to say this, so you know I'm not lying. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And we are joined by a returning guest host. She's a reviewer, a good one at that, Erica Robbins. Say hello, Erica. Hey, guys. And today we're joined by screenwriter and author of uh, many books. One that we'll talk about later on is Heart Strange and Dreadful, now out through Off Limits Press. Tim McGregor. Hello, Tim. Hey, guys. Nice to see you. So, Tim, what got you into horror? Um, I think it started with comic books at a very young age. Um, I was always a comic nut, but I was always drawn to anything to do with monsters. So any book at the school library that was even remotely horror or monster-related, or I would scan the TV guide for anything that was... Uh, horror related so 
it's just it's kind of always been there uh, my my dad was kind of into it as well so i think i kind of inherited it from him so and i've just never let it go so now you mentioned you know comics was kind of uh uh let's call it a gateway sure. i'm curious now were you um were you raised in canada as well as being there presently yeah yeah born and raised here so what were some of the uh, comics that caught your attention? I don't know if they might be different than some of our U.S. listeners might be used to. It was, but It was probably pretty much the same thing. It was uh, DC Comics had a, a lot of horror comics like House of Mystery, House of Secrets, stuff like that. And there was, uh, there was another publisher called Gold Key who put out – they had a character named Dr. Spectre who was kind of a monster fighter. Every, every issue he'd be fighting vampires or the, the Frankenstein's monster. Probably the same. I mean, I'm sure all of our comics came out of the U.S., so it was probably the, exactly the same influences that uh, influenced a lot of horror writers down there. In, in fact, when I think about it, um, I think I, as a kid, I caught the tail end of there was a certain monster mania back starting in the '60s, which I think started when TV started showing old Universal monster movies on TV. And uh, like there was magazines like called Famous Monsters of Finland of Filmland, um, and I think as a kid I kind of caught the tail end of that, uh, which probably was, is going back to Erica's question, probably what got me into horror in the first place, just catching this, the last remnants of this strange monster mania that swept through uh, the U.S. and Canada. So kind of a matter of right place, right time. You know, you kinda. you caught the. Uh, societal, I guess, effects of it, but also, you know, it sounds like uh, you had the, not the upbringing, I don't think that's the word I'm looking for, but you said that it was there in the house. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was, like, um, my dad always read my horror comics, and he had, uh, there was always, like, spooky books around, as well as regular um, other genres. There was always books of ghost stories and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah. So was, how does that? Sorry, I'm sorry, go just, ahead. Just say, um, my dad's family is kind of deeply Catholic, and I think some of it may have come out of uh, that sort of morbid <laughs> uh, Catholic upbringing. So I, I can speak for uh, Patrick and myself. I know exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> 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 New Englanders, right? Right, right. So, so you were you were. Um, can I jump to that question about religion? Sure. Or are you going to go there, Brennan? No, go for it. All right. So you have a background in going to school for two things. Uh, religion is one of them. You want to take us through that? That was just um, – I went to uni for English Lit, and then I found this course called the, uh, the Search for the Historical Jesus, which is just trying to find evidence of the guy – through other sources or, or sources outside the Bible. And I kind of, I found it kind of fascinating. So I started taking a few more courses uh, on religion, but it didn't really go anywhere. I was, it was just kind of like a minor that uh, just my own weird interest in it. It's, you know, there's that old joke about you can take the kid out of the Catholic church, but you can't take the Catholic church out of the kid. That kind of, uh, that held true. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I feel guilty every day, every second that I breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true Catholic. 
Now, Erica, every breath is a sin, Patrick. Yes, it is. <laughs> Erica, I don't want to hog all the air. I feel guilty. Why don't you go? No, it's totally fine. The guilt factor is real on my end, too. So it's definitely a New England thing, too. Um, so I had a few questions about the latest release, if you want to jump that far in. everybody. Yeah, okay. Cool. So um, the first thing I wanted to talk about with your latest release was just the fact that it was released the day after Valentine's Day. Um, and on your site, I saw you had a quote that said, it's perfect timing for a book about hearts on fire. So the first time I read that, I was like, oh, cool. This is going to be like some romance added into the horror. <laughs> and now that I'm reading it after I finished the book, I'm like, oh, nope. <laughs> so that yeah. made me laugh really hard this afternoon when I saw that. Is that something that you wrote and put up there? Um, one of it is one of his was uh, the publisher, I think. And the publisher had chosen the the the, pub, the, the dates. But when I saw that it was realized it was just after Valentine's Day. It did make a weird kind of sense. Plus there are hearts in the in this in the book. It's just not what you usually think of as talking about hearts. So <laughs> Yeah, I should have known that with the title with the word dreadful in it that it wasn't <laughs> gonna be super happy. <laughs> so I know we had talked on Twitter before because I got to a point in the book and I just started crying and I tweeted to say, oh my gosh, I got to this point and I'm I'm so sad. And oh, you're like right. I, I right. want to say cool but that doesn't feel right <laughs> yeah no i remember that that was funny yeah so take uh, us take oh i'm sorry erica no let's go ahead i was gonna say uh before we get too far ahead in the book let's uh go back to how this idea even started not where you got your idea from or maybe actually where you got your idea from i don't really like asking that because that seems really cliche but why don't you why don't you start from the beginning man with this book specifically how did it come up um, well, I'd always heard stuff about the New England vampire panic, which was a strange phenomenon of people, families that were dying of consumption. They got into their head that they would dig up the family members who had died. And if any of them weren't rotting, they suspected them of somehow harming the family, that, that this this corpse was somehow feeding off the family and they would... Uh, extract the heart and burn it and it would make the the sick family members stand in the smoke or sometimes they would make them drink the ashes thinking that that, that would cure them which seems completely bonkers um, and the, the weird thing is the last documented case of this was 1892 which is only about 8 years before the turn of the century that's not that long ago um and then a couple of years ago, I read a book that was on the subject. It was written by a guy named Michael E. Bell, who was a folklorist, who was just going around New England trying to track down every instance of this phenomenon that he could find. The, the last one was the most famous. It was the most documented. But he found about almost two dozen other instances of this happening. And it just, it just stuck with me because it was such a fascinating idea. Um, even though like at the, the time that it was happening... Nobody back then used the word vampire, even though that's kind of what it was. Um, yeah, and I was just so after reading his book and then reading a couple of their historical texts, just in the time period, I just knew I had to write a novel about this. It was like right up my alley. So, and I yeah. had a hell of a lot of fun writing it too. 
Okay, because I was just about, I looked it up. I was going to ask, well, when was Dracula written? And I found it. Uh, 1897. So, yeah, yeah I guess it. It, it was guess. written before that. And I'd, I'd read that uh, a newspaper clipping of that, la- of that last New England events was found among his papers. So he was aware of it. Oh. Uh, which probably fed into the, had to have fed into the writing of, you know, the most classic vampire book ever. So. That's really interesting. It's kind of yeah. like me, Brennan, and uh, Ken McKinley's show that I mentioned in the intro uh, when we read Psycho. Um, he, at the very end, mentions Ed Gein. And, right. you know, all of us know who he inspired, such as Leatherface, Buffalo Bill from Sons of the Lambs, uh, a few others. But that was only two years after the events, after Ed Gein was guilty, was when uh, Robert Block wrote that. So that's kind of neat. That's that's really interesting. I had one more question, and then you guys take it away. But uh, this may be a long answer, but feel free to take it in any direction you want. Um, uh, how'd you write in that style? Well, not making it boring. I don't know how right, else to phrase right. that. Uh, I don't know. I, I tried to read. I got a couple books that were uh, – they were diaries or journal entries from people of the time period, which kind of helped. Uh, and a lot of it was just reading other other novels, written uh, other historical novels. the The main one was a book was True Grit, which uh, you guys made. I never knew it was a book until uh, the, F- the Coen Brothers came out with their version. I always thought it was just this old John Wayne movie, and I never liked John Wayne, so I never watched it. Mm. But when the Coen brothers came out with their movie, they republished the novel. I found it and I fell in love with it. It's, and it remains one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, and that is written with a really strong voice. Uh, the main character is this very, she's almost this obstinate pill. And there was something about the way he wrote that, that I thought I want to try to capture something like that as well. So I try to I use that as my inspiration to to get the voice of that character, which uh, was difficult to do, but I had a hell of a lot of fun writing it. It was it was fun just being a little opinionated and kind of diving into the that world and telling it first person as well, because most of my other books have been third person. So it was, it was a blast. I really like how you wrote it in the uh, perspective of a 16-year-old girl and how... Um, I, I am lacking on ways to say this any uh, more intelligently, but you just write it how it would back then, where basically like men were in charge. It's very patriarchal, right. and um, I, they it stuck out to me every time I read a line or or something about the place of women or the place of men or boys that should be boys, but they're considered men back then. Or women, girls who should be acting like proper women. Um, I think now it definitely wouldn't stuck out to me before I got uh, to invest in the indie horror community or Twitter or before I met my wife because those were the three things that really opened my eyes up to everything. But um, right. mm. now, I mean, I, I hear everyone's point of view. I let it digest and that stuff sticks out to me right away. So, do you have any comment on that? And that's my last question for now. Brennan and Erica take over afterwards. Um, 
no, it's just it's it was difficult to kind of think about it because it would have been like women it just simply had no autonomy whatsoever. So it, at times when I was writing, I was thinking, well, I'm being too harsh. I was like, no, this was this was really how it was. That plus the fact that there wasn't really uh, there was no such things as teenagers. Like you were either a child or an adult, and even childhood was a little uh, sketchy because kids people had kids so that they could work the farm and stuff, you know? Um, so it was interesting to try to put my head into her spot and how, how put upon she would be, how she wouldn't have a moment to herself and be expected to carry all this load. Um, but, but it also helped with uh, just creating a character that could be an underdog that the reader could root for, you know? which is always something I'm trying to do. You always want to get the, the reader to not just empathize with, the, with your character, but kind of root for them. So it, it, it helped in that way, how uh, not downtrodden, but how limited she was, how few choices she had. So I, I love that. I don't know that I would have picked it up without you saying so, but the parallels between Hester and between Maddie Ross and two in true grit, uh, they're there, you know, that, that kind of old fashioned, um, point, the, the point of view of that young, but strong and to a degree, hard headed, uh, head headed girl, um, kind of thrust into a kind of a ridiculous situation, a, a situation that's bigger than they are. Um, that's fantastic. I, I, I'm so glad I know that. It kind of like makes me appreciate the book on a whole other level. Now, when you were doing your uh, vampire research, whether they called them vampires or not, I wonder if, there, if you came across anything interesting that you just couldn't find a way to get in there that, that you want to share. Um, off, the, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Uh, other than like, there was just reading of these, these historical accounts, just the number of them kind of staggered me. Uh, I, I, I did want to, I was interested because it wasn't just one small town where this all happened. It was kind of all over new England. Um, it didn't happen. Uh, it wasn't the Puritans who did it. Like the Puritans of, I guess they're still in Salem, like that area. Um, it was other parts that were of New England where they were, they were more free thinking. So like where the Puritans were rigid, the other ones, um, they kind of delved in astrology and water witching and uh, astrology. That, that, they were quite free thinkers, and deeply religious, deeply pious, but they weren't uh, closed off to these other ideas. And I, I kind of, I try to express some of that in the book because Hester's always um, taken aback or confused by the weird customs. Uh, but I, I was interested in how that same thinking, the, the, that, that vampire, or the, the idea of like digging up the dead and burning the heart, how that seemed to travel from place to place, the way that, uh, I guess, folk remedies do. I couldn't really figure that in too much, but uh, it, was, it was one of those parts of research where I was like, oh, I really love that part, but there's just no, there's no room to put it in here without slowing the narrative down or making it boring. So now I'm not really sure how to ask this without spoilers. So 
you can feel free to you know blow me off with like a two word answer. But okay. uh, as far as the lore for how it does spread from town to town, how, how much of that was based in research versus your imagination? Uh, the way I did it in the book was just my imagination. Uh, and it, I will say this isn't the first time I've used this scenario where a guy comes riding to town half dead on the back of a horse and there's something wrong with him. Uh, maybe I've seen too many certain kind of Westerns. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that was just a, a recurring thing in my own writing or weird obsessions. The the, the stranger who brings tragedy with him. Eric, I'm kind of hogging the spotlight. Do you, uh, do you have anything you want to jump in with? Yeah, just talking about the main character and, you know, how you developed her character specifically. Um, I thought her internal voice was really interesting because right. maybe that ties into that guilt factor, but she was pretty nasty to herself sometimes. And I know we talked about that on the episode with Sonora Taylor, but like I also have kind of an angry internal voice from time to time. So I really like started relating to her going through that, even though like my life is completely different with her than her. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. It's, um, a lot of that was just, I just kind of drew on my own stuff. Cause I also, you know, I, I we could, we all, we could, we're all kind of hard on ourselves or the self doubt is always there. You, mm -hmm. I would think, you know, I'm not a young guy anymore. I, I was, I would, I was, I thought some of that stuff would kind of fall away and I would just be this confident guy who know what to do all the time no it's still there i still doubt my uh the things i do or my own judgments um so a lot of that was just drawing on my own um internal dialogue which can sometimes drive you insane uh and maybe some of the catholic guilt kind of fed into that as well uh and it's trying to double down on it considering just trying to place myself in the character as teenage girl in a in a time when nobody cared what she thought they just cared what she that she did what she was told which i, I think would just make it 10 times worse so yeah just taking own experience and kind of throwing it in there even though like there's, there's that old advice about write what you know <clears throat> i think that's actually what they mean they don't mean you can't write a story about a fireman if you're not a firefighter uh, take what you do know and adjust it to what you're what you're writing to make it again relatable like everybody can kind of relate to that that internal monologue that drives you uh, crazy or trips you up or your own self-doubt making you make the wrong decision or, so that's awesome and then kind of going back to how you said you like to have sort of like reoccurring things going on um, I felt like in this book specifically, and I should preface this with, I, I've only read this book of yours so far, right. so definitely need to pick up some more, but I felt like this book really kept me on my toes. Like I, I could never expect what was going to happen next. And yeah. especially cause it was, I don't want to say a slow build cause that comes off as kind of rude, but like you really set the scene and like develops the characters really well. And then all of a sudden I was just like, what, what's happening now? Like I, it just got crazy. So is that something you typically have in your other works or? I, I do. Um, I, I put a lot of work in trying to keep the pacing tight. Although it, with this book, it, you're right. It is a very, it is a slow burn. There's quite a lot of buildup. 
um, until something truly creepy happens and, and the plot starts to really kick in. Um, but I do, my, I think my main goal is always to keep the, the pacing tight. The, the pacing tight, yeah. And always, just to get the reader to turn the page. Like, like my, my main rule is like, just never be boring. So I'm always focused on tight pacing and maybe ending a scene on a bit of a cliffhanger or a big question. So you have to get to the next page. So yeah, it's something I work on and uh, hopefully it, it pays off. So yeah, I definitely. You know, Erica. Oh, sorry. No, like, go ahead. <laughs> I, you know, you you kind of tried to tiptoe around it like the polite person you are and not say slow burn. But I think that's exactly what it is, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, yeah, we've talked about vampires a little bit, but uh, the amount of time talking about vampires pales in comparison to the amount of time we've been kind of doting on the main character. And the reason for that is because of that character building, that character development, um, the events later on in the story when everything goes off the rails, they are successful because the reader, well, the author first off, but the reader then has invested the time uh, to get to know these people. And, you know, I remember texting Patrick when I finished the book um, and saying, and he he misinterpreted this, but I, I said, I hate the ending. I, I, I hate the last few pages. <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's it's not good. No, 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 it's real good. But I, I hate it. And it's it's all based on the fact that it it drew me into the world. Um, it other, otherwise that doesn't succeed and I don't get those strong emotions from that payoff. Thanks. I, I, I appreciate that. Like, you know, every story is, has its own method. And, and while I knew that this was t- kind of, that it was a bit of a slow burn at first, that it's kind of taking its time. I thought the character stuff would be inter- interesting enough to carry it, but also hopefully make the reader care about it, the character. And nothing's going to be scary or thrilling if you don't care about the character. So that was my, my main intention there. But th- thank you for that. It was, it was very sweet of you to say. You and me talked about this, Tim, briefly uh, on Twitter, where I said, I'm listening to the soundtrack to The Witch, and that is, it's, they could be cousins. That movie in your book, it's it's really neat. Um, both slow burns. I don't use that as a, a negative connotation either. Um, I just use that as a way to describe it. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, why did you pick Rhode Island of all places? Was that where that famous 19, uh, 1897 incident occurred? Yes, yes. Uh, and I think most of them did occur there. Okay. Um, there may have been some other reason why I chose Rhode Island, but yeah, it was because it was most of the instances took most of the recorded instances took place in Rhode Island, so I just kind of stuck with that. Hmm. You're the third book in the Off Limits Press bibliography or history. Uh, that's pretty neat. Um, I can't imagine how many books Sam got when she made that open call. The first time for novels. Right. But, I mean, you're following up Crossroads, Laurel Hightower's Crossroads, followed by uh, Haley Piper's The uh, Worm and His Kings 
So you got two different stories there, but then your book comes along and it's uh, it's completely different. I love what Sam's doing with her press. I, I mean, I know Greg Sisko's after you, mm-hmm. and right. that, and then after that's Catherine McCarthy, I believe that's it's right. her. Yeah, and then um, I'm going to butcher the next one, so I'm not going to try, but I, I love this, man. Like, this press is... Me and Brennan talked when she first announced it and thought that there's going to be a lot of good to come from it. Uh, probably, more than likely, uh, uh, in for the long haul. And um, I don't know. It, it's been a hell of a star for her. So this is my long-winded way of asking you, how has the reception been so far for you with this book? The reception has been amazing. I've been blown away by how... Uh how the book's been received, the the early reviews that came in and uh, what people have been saying on Twitter and Instagram, the I couldn't have asked for more. Uh, and a lot of that is directly off limits, uh, really doing a hell of a lot of work behind the scenes to uh, to get the book out there to early readers, um, getting it up on some news sites and really pushing it. But uh, it's been fantastic. I, I've never had a book come out with this much with such a warm reception to it. And uh, I've spent the last two days sort of on cloud nine, just uh, it, I'm so grateful and so happy about it. I'm like, it's, it's phenomenal. It's great. And I'm and working with off limits, like, yeah, they're a new press, but they've just come out, come blazing out of the gates, you know, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be with them. <laughs> Again, Sam is blazing out of the gates herself, man. She, she really is. Her first novella, she comes out with a true crime. I'm just going to say, I don't speak for anyone but myself. That should have been a Stoker. That uh, should have won the Stoker Awards. I know they're only the preliminary. Nothing against anyone else, but that book is just killer. Uh, it's got a nomination for the Splatterpunk Award, along right. with the first uh, anthology she's edited, Worst Play Plans Through Grindhouse Press. Um, which she's also, as you heard in the beginning before the intro, the commercial that is for the uh, Worsley Plans adaptation. There's five short films, I believe it's short films. Um, look into that on Google. Quick ad there, but I mean, then she comes out with this pub, you know, this press, and I, I don't know. I don't know how she has all the energy and all the smartness and the creativity behind it. Um, enough kissing her ass because I'm sure I'm embarrassing her. So I will stop. I'm sorry, Sam, but you are amazing. So, Erica, why don't you uh, take away? I'm just blabbering on here. Sure. So, like I was saying a couple minutes ago, um, Heart Strange and Dreadful was the first book I picked up by you. Would If you had to pick one book to start with, because I know you have a bunch in a couple of pretty long series, which right. book would you recommend to readers that are new to your work? Um... Hmm. I have a book. Uh, one of them is called "Old Old Flames Burned Hearts." No, no, "Old Flames Burned Hands." I've forgotten the title. Uh, that I liked a lot, which is sort of a contemporary uh, story of a, a, a former mus- a musician, kind of a failed musician, who's decided to give up the business because she's never been able to make it work for her, uh, and she kind of burns her guitar and stuff. And in the process, she replays this old song, the song that she wrote for her boyfriend who died when she was 20. And when she plays it, he suddenly comes back into her life. 
Um, so it's, it probably has some of the same themes as uh, um, Heart Strange. Uh, and it's always been a favorite of mine, which uh, has never really sold very well or gotten very many reviews, but uh, that might be a good place to start. Um, I, I don't know if... Um, my main thing is my series, which has gone on for quite a while, and I never planned it to, but it just did. Um, and I know some people like to start a series knowing that there's lots of books, but at the same time, that might be a deterrent to some readers. Because I know it would be a deterrent to me if somebody suggested a series, and then I looked at it when there was and, and saw there was ten books. I might not, I might not go for it because that's a that's a big commitment. <laughs> The other book I saw that caught my eye was just like Jesse James. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that one's um, that was based. I, I read this strange urban legend uh, about um, that Jesse James had buried uh, some gold in a farmer's field, which is a, a common urban legend. You'll find that throughout a lot of the, the the U.S. But this particular legend was a small town here in Ontario. And it was so absurd, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Uh, so I wrote a story about that. It's basically four cousins. The uh, When their grandfather dies, they discover um, that the grandfather was obsessed with this legend. He was convinced that the gold was buried on his farm. And he had managed to uh, search everything but one acre. So these four cousins take up the search for this missing gold. And uh, when they find it, they all kind of turn on each other it's more of a there's nothing supernatural about it it's more of a uh sort of crime noir kind of thing um again which is a lot of fun to write but uh, and again i suppose a little based in historical thinking okay brennan you got anything man no i was actually uh so for those people who would enjoy diving into a 10 or you know a three book <laughs> series uh, well, let's start with Spook Show. What's what's the premise behind that? And you know, if you want to wrap it into one big long answer, I'm kind of curious how you go about uh, keeping a ten book series going. Uh, you do it by the seat of your fucking pants because <laughs> that's the only way I've been able to do it. Um, the Spook Show is is about a young woman with paranormal abilities who can see the dead, and it completely messes up her life. Um, and I'd never planned for it to go this long. I had originally thought of an arc that could carry maybe three or four books. Uh, but I just really liked the world that I'd set up and it was, and I liked the characters and there was a readership there. So I just kept going with it. Um, and having a lot of fun. It, having said that it, they are getting harder to write. Sorry. They're getting harder to write. Well, because I don't want to repeat myself or just phone it in. Um, but having said that, I am working on the 11th book in the series. So I, I, the last four or five books in the series, every time I get to the, I, every time I finish one, I think, okay, that's it. I, I can't do mm-hmm. these. And a year goes by and I start thinking about the characters again and dive back in. So, so far I, th- I think it's, I've managed not to ruin the series by ha- by hacking it or phoning it in. So, but I think I really think this one might be the last one. I think it might be the end of it. Do you have a massive outline for that? 
Uh, I don't have a, the the first four books did have a, a kind of I did have an outline for that. Um, right now, I I don't. I'm not really quite sure where. Excuse me. The story would go after this, but I do have a big document that's just full of details because a lot of times I lose track of. Like, there's a lot of after this many books. There's a lot of characters, a lot of details, and sometimes I get really finicky about, you know, what kind of car, what character drove, or what their address was. So I, I've got this massive. I call it a Bible because I keep having to go back to it. Going, oh, what was. <laughs> What was he driving? What row was she living on? So, Eric, you got any questions pertaining to this subject? No, I'm good. I'd like to uh, jump to um, your Canadian background, man. As far as uh, where you grew up, you wrote in your bio, uh, your bio about uh, hinterlands. <laughs> yeah, that was just that's just northern Ontario. We. Uh, when I was about five, my parents decided that they wanted to own a tourist camp in northern Ontario. So we did. We bought one. Uh, it was pretty remote. Um, it was a lot of fun in the summertime because there was, there was about eight cottages and a big lodge. And the same families came back for the same two-week period every year. So it was like having a whole bunch of different friends who came back every year throughout the summer. Um, which was fun, but the winters were a little bleak because um, it was pretty remote. Um, you know, we you know we had snowmobiles and we would go ice fishing and that kind of stuff. But there's only so much of that you can do, and winter lasts a long time up there. Uh, and when you've only got three TV stations and one of those is French, it, people start to go a little stir crazy. So, yeah. It was, it was enjoyable, but it probably fed into, like, the fact that it was so boring forced you to become creative, uh, or just to create your own fun, which led me to start writing and, and drawing a lot and stuff like that, which I think just all kind of fed into what I'm doing now, so. Brennan, got any follow-ups? Sorry, I lost my mute button for there for a minute there. <laughs> um, yeah, so I actually we we kind of whisked along earlier. We were talking about comics and you know monster movies and things like right. that. And I was curious about how at, at what point that fascination with the macabre turned into a desire to tell your own stories. So that kind of ties in here with the uh, Canadian wasteland. Uh, yeah, kind of. Um... When I was younger, I actually wanted to be a comic book artist uh, more than a writer. And I used to, in my 20s, I used to make my own comic books. I was I was reading a lot of what they called alternative comics back then, stuff that was, uh, stuff like Love and Rockets or uh, Eight Ball, uh, Dirty Plot, which were just weird indie comics. So I started doing that. I started making my own comics, the, you know, the kind where you... I would draw the pages and then take them into work. And when no one was looking, I would go abuse the hell out of the photocopier and, uh, and just make my own comics and put them in record stores and little comic shops, um, which was a lot of fun. 
but I was I was trying my hand at writing a longer narrative. I just, I just didn't like the stories that I was writing. So a friend suggested studying screenwriting just to learn some kind of hard and fast rules about storytelling. Uh, and then I kind of, so I did that with the intention of writing better comic stories, but then I kind of fell in love with the craft of screenwriting, which led to pursuing that for a while. And then that led to writing novels. Um, I've forgotten the actual, what you actually asked me, but I think it's something along those lines. It was, it was a weird progression of like, uh, going from one sort of creative pursuit, having it tumble into another and another until I, until I kind of found exactly what I, where I wanted it to be. So, so you'd consider novel writing your home? Yeah, it, it is now. It's, it's, it's what I love doing. Um, it's just, yeah, it's kind of the perfect thing. Like the, um, I'm no good at short stories. I've, I've written a bunch. They're all terrible or they just run long and they go nowhere. Um, but novels are kind of, uh, my sweet spot. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy as a pig and shit. <laughs> so what is it about this form versus screenplays or versus comics that appeals to you? Um, Working film, film is a really collaborative uh, endeavor. There's a lot of people involved, and there's a lot of people involved at the very creative level, uh, or people who have more say than you. There's producers and directors, and uh, you really have to work well with others. Um, but it can also, despite everyone's best intention and everyone working their asses off, it can easily go sideways, and you end up with something that nobody wanted. Um, so as fun as it can be, it's, it can also, I don't know, something about it, it wasn't working for me. So, uh, turning to novels, it's kind of just me and maybe an editor, uh, and maybe further down the line, a publisher, but maybe it's just the egomaniac in me or the control freak, but I, I preferred, I preferred this. I preferred doing it on my own with as few people in the creative pie smearing it all over the place. So <laughs> it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, you get your name on the cover, so you get the pari- the pride if it comes out exactly the way you intended. But of course you get all the blame if it doesn't. Um, I, I completely understand what you're saying about the movie making process, the amount of people involved, uh, plus the amount of compromise that has to go in to keep everybody happy especially those at the top i could imagine you know you have your name on something that you're that that you might not have had more than five percent of say in uh it i i would imagine that's that that can be frustrating um i think i saw in your bio that you said you worked on several screenplays for like uh straight to dvd movies and and you said something along the lines of and i can't recommend them (laughs) (laughs) yeah they well these were I've had three feature films made, but they're all sort of in the low budget, straight to DVD um, category. Uh, and they, a couple turned out okay, but they weren't, they're not fantastic. They're maybe okay thrillers. One of them I'm kind of embarrassed to have my name on, but. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll get you a copy. Uh, but yeah. Uh, they were fun to make, but 
the, like you said, it is a, a two-edged. It can be two-edged because there is a lot of people involved, and the more money involved in it, the more people, the, the more it can really kind of go somewhere you didn't think it was going to go. So, uh, and like, at that level of uh, filmmaking. Like once my job was done with the screenplay and the production was kind of rolling, there was nothing else I could do to really, like it was already, like no one was going to listen to me when I was saying this isn't working because it was, you know, the, <clears throat> the, the bull was already out of the gates. We only had 20 days of shooting time. It was like very tight. So it was kind of like, uh, yeah. I'll tell you, I worked at a uh, video rental store through college um, uh-huh. in probably about 2007 to about 2011 <laughs> or so. So if any of your movies came out straight to DVD during that time, I probably saw them. We they probably, probably stocked in, they, they probably <laughs> stocked an entire bay of them. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd be amazed. We, we usually got, uh, you know, tons and tons of copies of those um, Missed the theater action movies and people were so excited to come in and rent them. So, really, yeah, they were everyone. Well, you know, one of the movies I did have made was by a German guy named Uwe Boll, who has the distinction of being back then he was called the worst director of all time. Uh, he was nice to me, and the movie he made was it wasn't bad, it was kind of a tight thriller. It starred Luke Perry. Um, but yeah, it was, it it was clearly, you know, it was not going to be released in theaters. It was just a straight to put it on the DVD rack. Here's your action thriller, slightly apocalyptic movie. And away you go. See, Ula Bull did, uh, Alone in the Dark. Uh, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) I, I, I even, um, a friend of mine actually did the writing on that. On I think Alone in the Dark was an adaptation of a video, a video game. Yeah, that's an older game. Yeah, but the, the guy who ended up writing it, who I ended up meeting or becoming friends with, uh, great guy. He had a book published last year that had really good acclaim, and now he's working on uh, This Is Us. So, you know, despite where you where you start. You can't move on to better things. Yeah, that's a pretty big. Isn't that with Tom Hanks' son? The show? Yeah. Or the. uh, I don't know. I've never watched it. No, I've I've watched one episode. No, the first episode. It made me cry, so I didn't watch it. Maybe you're mixing that up. (laughs) I think think it made that up. I'm pretty sure that I'm mixing it up with something else. You're just straight up lying at this point. (laughs) I'm lying. I'm not your friend. I, I will tell you, I looked up the uh, that that Luke Perry movie, and I very much remember that cover being on the new release Do wall. So, <laughs> oh, that's amazing! <laughs> yep. That's hilarious. Did you yep. get anyone that said you had that new Luke Perry straight to DVD? <laughs> you know what? Obviously, that was like 13 years ago or so, so I don't remember exactly, but I can pretty much tell you yes. Um, it, you'd you'd be amazed at the amount of people who. Were, would come out on Tuesday afternoon looking for all the new releases, you know, whether you'd heard of them or not, and couldn't wait to rent that Luke Perry movie written by Tim McGregor. <laughs> Sorry, man, I will tell you, nobody ever asked for the new Tim McGregor movie, but... Uh, no, that's, that's fine. They wouldn't have. Would have. It would have made for a very interesting conversation tonight, though. Yeah, for sure. 
<laughs> if uh, your new release, Hearts Strange and Dreadful, did come out as a movie, have you ever thought of that? Who would play who? Uh, I haven't really. Um, I'm not really that concerned about it. Uh, seeing my books turn into film, like it would be cool if it happened, but because I've already worked there uh, and seen behind the curtain, I'm not. I'm not. I don't really think about it anymore. Mm. Like. If it did, it would be great. Who would play Hester? I don't know. Like Matthew McConaughey? <laughs> I don't know. So, so, so just walk around shirtless? Sure. Why not? It doesn't matter. Playing his bongos. <laughs> That's a different movie, I think. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Erica, do you want to jump in? or? I am out of questions. I mostly came in with questions about your most recent release, so... <laughs> If I think of something, I'll let you guys know. <laughs> That's okay. I, I want to steer us. So um, we we mentioned earlier uh, that internal dialogue and Hester kind of being hard on herself. You said that definitely rings true for you, Tim. Um, one of the thing, another thing in your bio that caught my uh, attention, and there was a little bit of sarcasm attached to it. You You wrote, writing treated like a divinely inspired mystical art. And... Most of the reason that caught my attention is because I had seen you posting uh, something in response to, I don't remember who earlier in the day, about imposter syndrome. So I'm wondering if you'll speak a little bit to that, having worked in multiple media fields, having published a significant number of books on your own, and now having a book out through a small press. Tell us about your, you know, bouts with imposter syndrome. I know, uh, just to jump in real quick, that conversation uh what involved me mainly tim mainly Catherine mccarthy and uh joe lansdale all right you know i am I'm, I'm always amazed uh imposter syndrome seems to be so prevalent it shows up more in writing or literature or writers but it's 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 everywhere everyone's felt it um and when I think back to, uh, you know, when I was younger, I used to feel like the outside. I used to feel like the outsider all the time. I used to have imposter syndrome, even though there wasn't. I didn't know the name for it. Um, but apparently, everybody does. Some people just mask it better. Um, and as to the the thing about writing being some uh, mystical, divinely divine power, that was that happens. When I went to university and started studying literature, the way that the professors were teaching it, which is just the academic approach, they treated it like it was like it was a, a superhuman thing, like a, a divine spark. And it kind of turned me off. I, it made me think, well, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not superhuman, so I'm just going to stop writing. Um, and then years later finding out that it's not that it's it's a lot of hard work and one number of drafts and revisions and all that shit and i was a little kind of pissed off at my former professors for teaching me that bullshit and and shame on me for believing it but uh you know that coupled with imposter syndrome how could you not just give up um so yeah i, I may have been grinding an axe when i wrote my little bio thing <laughs> <laughs> There's a, there's a lot of pretension in that statement. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, you need. I don't know. I think if you if you want to become a writer, university might be the worst thing to 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 take or to go to. Or maybe it's changed. I don't know. But the courses that I was taking, it did not encourage you to even contemplate writing. It, it I guess it's just the academic approach. The academic approach is to like crawl shove your head so far up the ass of the subject that you can't even see the trees, right? Um, which is probably not the best thing to do if you're, you know, 18 and you think you want to write, so. That'd be a yeah. shit forest. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And, which is what it, they usually teach, so. <laughs> so. I can't speak for writing, but, you know, speaking on the music front, because I, I did go to school for music, and mm. it was mostly to pursue uh, the educational angle. But, you know, the, the best musicians in the world, they either learned it, you know, by playing, or they dropped out of Juilliard, they dropped out of Berkeley right. before, they, they went to make the contacts, and and that was it. And, again, I, 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 I'm only speaking about writing in the hypothetical sense, but I would imagine it's the same thing. You can go to school and bury yourself in the exercises they throw at you. And maybe, maybe 30 or 40% of them are, are worth your time. But at the end of the day, it's, if you're writing to become a published author, um, you know, somebody who's reading your manuscript, they don't give a shit what your degree says. Um, they, they, they care whether you can make characters come to life on the page. Yeah, true. Well, I think, you know, if I think about uh, my favorite writers, I doubt any of them have an, have a, an, an MFA in, in writing or, or English lit, you know, so. On the flip side, you know, again, going back to music, if we don't convince the next generation that they have to go to school for music, then I'm out of a job. So <laughs> I can see why the cycle perpetuates itself. <laughs> yeah. Who are your favorite authors? Um, I've always been a big fan of, uh, Cormac McCarthy. He's not for everybody, but, uh, his book, Blood Meridian remains a favorite that I, I probably read maybe eight or nine times. Um, I like Charles Portis who wrote True Grits. Um, there was a book that came out just like two years ago by a young Irish writer named uh, Sally Rooney. The book was called uh, Normal People, which was kind of a big deal at the time. Uh, that remains one of the best books I've read uh, ever. I've I read that three times just trying to figure out how she did that. Um, and it, it's a very simple story. It's, it's really just a love story. Uh, but it, it's one of the best books I've ever read. And I, I'm looking forward to reading more of her work. Um, I, I can't think of anybody off, right off the top of my head right now. Hmm. Now, I don't know the answer to this. I guess that's why I'm asking the question. But uh, <laughs> podcast-wise, how's that been for you? Experience with, uh, I know with us and Ink Heist, I don't know other podcasts that you've been on, but is it is it different? Did, is this something that you used to do with previous books for promotion? No. No, in fact, this is uh, my second podcast interview. Uh, the first was with Ink Heist a little while ago. Uh, and that's been really cool because I'm actually a huge fan of uh, podcasts. Um, I like it for the exact same reason that I used to make comic books. Because it was 
do it yourself and sort of a punk attitude of like, fuck it, this is a thing I love and I'm going to make something and share it with everybody. Uh, and podcasts are kind of the same way. There's no, there's no gatekeepers. There's no business around it. It's just people who have a passion for something uh, and want to, sh- want to share it with others. Um, and so I, I listen to podcasts all the time. Um, and I, I seem to be subscribing to more and more all the time, but, uh, and right now the, the ones that are about, uh, authors and writing and the horror genre are kind of top of the lists, but, uh, the, I don't know. The podcasts are amazing. It's, it's that unfiltered deep dive into some really weird niche thing that I really love. And, and also the fact that it's just, it's just regular people talking about something they love and doing it, like saying, fuck it. Like, you know, I don't have to go to some gatekeeper to get permission to do this. I can just do it, which is amazing. Yeah. I love it. I mean, me and Brandon have been talking to people all over the world during a pan. That's when we started. We started during a pandemic. Um, kept me sane, kept my mind busy. Right. Right. No, you, you, you guys have a great podcast. You guys, um, you always have really great conversations. They're always very late like this, very laid back and relaxed, which seems to bring out the best in people. Um, has it only been like a year for you guys? Cause it seems like you've been around forever. <laughs> we started we recording 13 episodes a week. <laughs> yeah. You, you guys do put out a lot of contact, which is amazing, especially for a podcast fanatic like me, but well, it depends if you're my wife or not. <laughs> um, yeah, so we started. Uh, I recorded my first episode in February. Uh, that was episode two with Ginger Nuts of Horror. First one I recorded a little bit after that with Lex H. Jones. Um, we recorded six to launch, and that was before we launched. So, yeah, the first time I recorded was February. That was before Brandon and I talked. We were supposed to record together with guests that unfortunately couldn't make it at that time. Just clicked. <laughs> and then one day he's like, hey, I, uh, I was wondering if you want to write a story with me. And then I'm like, I was going to ask you that, too. Uh-huh. And we wrote a very long book. And, yeah, it's been a little over a year now from the launch date. Yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. And Erica was amazing. I, I mean, I, I could speak for Brenda on this. I think she is our first fan. I don't like when shows, and I, I'm not judging them, but I guess that kind of sounded like it. I don't like when shows are like, I don't have fans. Like that sounds pretentious. It's not. If you're, if you like something, you're. I mean, I, I don't know what other word to use. You're, <laughs> you're a fan of that show. Right. So, I deem Erica the first fan of our show. So that's awesome that she's on here too. Um, I'm getting so, off track. So is, is that sort of breaking? But is is that how uh, Erica came to be part of the show? Just um, listening to it at first, and and joining in. Yeah, and I uh, I messaged her and said, "Hey, would you want to be on a show? And here's the guest that we're gonna have. Who do you want to go on with?" And she said, "Hunter Shea." <laughs> it's like, oh, the Jersey guy. I don't know. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I was so nervous because I've never done anything even slightly like this like I have a book blog and a book Instagram but I'm not used to hearing my own voice or especially like seeing myself now that these episodes are on YouTube so I was just like oh boy I I don't know if I can do this but these two were incredible and like super supportive so it's been great 
I, I, I understand about the video thing. I was a little hesitant about that myself, but uh, good for you though. I mean, it, again, it's, it's working. Like you, I, I've heard other episodes that you, you've been on, Erica, and I don't know. You guys just create a nice, warm, welcoming environment for for your guests, and it leads to a good conversation. So, well that's done. Aw- that's awesome. Um, yeah, and that's common. There's a lot of people that are nervous, but um, sure. Although I would, I was, I listened to uh, the last episode you put out, the the mailbag one, <laughs> and I was laughing at Brennan, you trying to stick Patrick to one answer to a number of questions. <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't follow directions well. No, but it was it's it was kind of funny. I was laughing. I'm a uh, byproduct, like many of us are, to ADD, and uh, I've never outgrown it. I don't know if that's the <laughs> thing, but. <laughs> Um, Brennan, do you have any direction to steer us in? Because I, I lost, yeah. I lost fucking yeah. track of the path. Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, I w- I would pick on you because you know when you were asking the What's last new, question, <laughs> <laughs> when you were asking the last question, you 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 were asking Tim, you know, how's his experience been on this show? We really shouldn't deliver mid-show surveys to our guests. Oh, why not? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why. Okay, Tim's okay question. with it. So <laughs> yeah. I don't want potential guests thinking like, I don't want to answer that shit. What if I don't like it? (laughs) (laughs) The other thing, you know, you, you guys were talking about Erica and now I'm talking about Erica. Like she's not right in front of me listening um, and able to respond. But uh, it, it was so crucial to get that early feedback. You know, when, when Pat and I are just sitting and talking to somebody, throwing it up on Twitter and saying, gee, hope somebody listens <laughs> to have, to have somebody reach out and say, I'm listening and I'm enjoying it like that. That was huge. You know, that was a big, she, she said we were able to boost her confidence to get her on here. You know, you boosted ours first. So there's, there's no underselling that. Yeah. I showed my wife and some of my friends, the, uh, article she made of us and i'm like it's not even an egotistical thing at all it just felt nice i was like oh this is one of my peers they think we're not idiots well that's not true she likes what we do so the clowns are doing something good (laughs) yeah i mean i'm definitely here to support the community which i think is the great thing about like just people on twitter because that's my main (laughs) social media but everyone's so tight tight knit so like when things happen, like when you have a new book release, everyone jumps in to promote that. And it's just really, I don't know, I keep saying it's really nice, but it's really nice to see. And it's like refreshing because I know there's plenty of drama and stupid stuff that happens on Twitter all the time. But I've like really feel like I've carved out like actual friends. So when I'm listening to podcasts, which I pretty much do all day long. (laughs) So luckily I'm working from home and I can just play a podcast, but my husband can never tell if I'm on a meeting or listening to a podcast, so he'll just stop and be like, podcast meeting, podcast meeting. <laughs> so I'll have That's to tell funny. him, like, oh, this is a podcast. So <laughs> it's it's great. I mean, I love all the content that's coming out and just the excitement that the community has around everything from book launches to, you know, interviews or new podcasts or whatever it may be. It's fun. Yeah, for sure. I, I will say uh, it is the, not just the horror community, but there's, because it's kind of broader than that, but um it is amazing how welcoming it is and how you 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 can meet so many like-minded people and they all seem to want to support each other uh that's been phenomenal especially i've seen that in action over the last two days uh seeing the the reception with the book it's been phenomenal Mm. um and it's 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 really nice especially 
and, and uh, like you're saying, Erica, a lot of it is on Twitter. Uh, and as we know, Twitter can be a shit show. <laughs> but in this in this little corner of it, it's really nice. Like Have I've you, made friends that only exist on to me on Twitter, but that's great. Like, especially now in the in the pandemic. Um, Have you gotten any pushback from writing in the point of view of a sixteen year old girl, with it being pa- pa- God patriarchal, uh, in the sense where someone might get, you know, man, I'm just gonna throw it out there. People get offended over fucking everything. Sure. So I- I'm genuinely curious. I'm not trying to come off like I'm judging anyone, and I've used that phrase way too much on this episode alone. But someone edit that out. Um, but you wrote it how it is or was back then. So I know that we both, you know, Brennan and Eric know that. But I'm curious. There's got to be someone that eventually says that. I'm wondering if you face that. Uh, I haven't yet. Uh, it might happen because there's, you know, there's always somebody who doesn't like something, uh, and that's that's fine. That's, that would be a valid point of view. Um, when it happens, I'll, I'll let you know. In fact, I'll forward your their complaints to you, and you can take care of them for me. How's I'm that? your assistant. Well, that's fine because <laughs> I typically social media manager. That's right. I'm You're doing hired. that. <laughs> doing that for uh, McKinley's podcast and uh, maybe others in the future. So whatever, fuck it. I guess. I got no problem telling people how I feel, so, you know, whatever. It gets me in hot water often, but I'm Irish and I'm Catholic, so I'm I'm going to live a life of uh, self-misery or whatever the proper term is. So we may as well just pile it on because you, you, you'll be carrying that load anyway. You know, whatever. It doesn't even matter. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> the gentleman makes a good point. <laughs> I was... Uh, one of my favorite gangster films is The Departed, and uh, Matt Damon says something like that. He's like, I'm Irish. I'm going to feel guilty forever. I'm butchering that quote, I'm sure. But it was something along those lines, and it felt it was very appropriate now. Yeah, for sure. I, I do like the soundtrack. That, sorry, not to let's go off on a tangent. but doesn't even matter. The, uh, it shows about nothing. It's like Seinfeld. <laughs> I like the soundtrack to that movie a lot. There's some, some good stuff to... Uh, to listen to while 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 I write because I like instrumental stuff. So they um yeah the Chrissy and Tony Soprano were listening to that in one of the later seasons. It might have been the last one. I, I can't recall, but they were listening to the Departed soundtrack. <laughs> makes sense. Well, um, Brennan, Erica, anything on the subject of the Departed, Jack Nicholson or Matt Damon? <laughs> I have a question about Jack Nicholson. No, I don't really. Um. So, you, Tim, you mentioned the mailbag episode. Actually, I uh, we, we had one question from you on there, so I kind of want right. to throw That's your right. own question to you. Um, what single piece of advice have you found the most helpful in your own work? Uh, wow, well, you're really putting me on the spot. I hadn't anticipated that. Um, <laughs> you wrote, you I wrote the question. so <laughs> I know, I know. I can't think of an actual lesson. I have concurred with a lot of things. When I hear another author talk about imposter syndrome that like we just talked about um and i always um i'm always just nodding my head when when i hear another author on your on your podcast or somebody else's talking about the fight to get over that because i think we've all been there and it takes a certain amount of like you need to it's not it's not something you have to fight you just have to learn to recognize it when it happens and realize that you know, this too will pass. It's, it's okay to have those moments, um, but they don't last forever. Uh, so when I hear when I hear another author talk about the same kind of thing, it 
it's kind of validating, but it also reassuring. Like, oh, if that guy is feeling it, or that 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 author is experiencing it as well, then it's okay. In fact, um, on that subject, I remember years ago watching an interview with Harlan Ellison. He was a he was a science fiction writer. He wrote for like Star Trek, and he wrote tons of stuff. He was also known for like punching people out. But he was relating a story about Steve McQueen, who he had worked with. You know Steve McQueen, the, the movie star? And Steve McQueen had told him about a recurring nightmare that he had, that there would be a knock on the door. And the guy there says, uh, sorry, there's been a big mistake. All the, all the money, all the fame, all the cars, all the success, it was supposed to go to the guy next door. Uh, and that was Steve McQueen's recurring nightmare. So even that guy... Like this is, you know, he was a huge movie star. Even that guy was talking about imposter syndrome. They just didn't have a name for it back then. So hearing Harlan Ellison talk about his own imposter syndrome by way of Steve McQueen having it, it's just another example of like how universal that is. And when you, when I hear it spoken of uh, by another author, I think you know what we're. It's common. It's it's okay to feel that way. It's not. Uh, it's not something to beat yourself out beat yourself up about or to wallow in it's just kind of goes with the job so that's true you're, you're absolutely right you know <coughs> the the amount of and i'm i'm parroting your own words back at you but the amount of people that we've talked to on here that express some sort of similar sentiment it just it it, it just makes it okay when when joe yeah. lansdale fear tells you that he feels that same way you're like oh okay so i mean that's legitimate this yeah. guy has written 157 books, um, and they're <laughs> and they're generally and they're all good. Uh, yeah. And even they wake up in the morning and say, "What well, you know? What the hell am I doing?" Sometimes. Um, so, with 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 your writing, what's your process like? Are you an everyday person? Is it? Do you treat it like a job, routine, ritual? I I yeah uh, I I do for the most part. Um, you know, is that phrase like you know write every day i don't sometimes i don't manage to write every day sometimes i'm just making chicken scratch notes because i don't know what to do next uh but i try to work in some capacity or other every day um yeah i i've, I've got a pretty standard routine nothing very exciting but it's just and I, I've, I've learned over the years that i'm kind of a creature of habit like uh when i first became when, or when we first became parents there's that advice that, you know, little kids need routine. It helps them. Turns out routine helps me. I'm just better if I know what's happening. If you, somebody throws a wrench into it, like, you know, Uncle Fred shows up out of the blues. who decides to stay with you. It completely messes me up and I can't get things done. So, yeah, I, I'm a routine sort of everyday kind of, you know, bang your head against the keyboard kind of runner. How about you guys? Do you, do you guys try to get at it every day? I try. It doesn't always work. I know. And, that's uh, the thing. You know, life happens. Um, I, I I try to be a good husband and a good father first and not lose my full-time job. So, you know, the last one, I got to put forth the efforts. And with the wife and son, I, uh, you know, instead of... Some people who have a father that is always at the bar. I don't want my kid always seeing me, 
it's weird to phrase it like this, but I don't always want him to see me with my nose in a book as opposed to paying attention to him right. and playing with him. You know, a uh, good example, it wasn't, you know, nothing I could do, but I was at work, got a video from my wife months and months ago, and it was the first steps that my son took. And I was like, ah, I wish I was there to see that <sighs> live. Nothing you can do. Yeah, yeah, that's life. But yeah, he runs all all around now. So, <laughs> um, but cool. for the most part, right now, I mean, it's changed for the last eight years that I've been writing with the mindset of being published as an author. Um, right now, on I'm working on a few things, but there's this one project I'm I'm doing with another co creators, a better word. I'm mostly writing it, but he's also heavily involved. Um, I'm trying to do 500 words minimum for five days every week where the weekend I have off. And normally I get 600 to 800 words. So for five days a week. So that's good. You're, you're ahead of the game. Yeah, but I'm not doing too well in some short stories. So I don't, I don't know. I'm juggling, you know, a bunch of turds in my hands basically. <laughs> and they're on fire. <laughs> bring it back to your, <laughs> bring it back to your book. I'm, I'm burning hearts and turds in my hands and trying to make a good thing out of them. Uh, that is a hell of a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> Someone should put um, that on a book. Quote me. It you guys works, need to make though. t-shirts with this stuff. I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> we need somebody to illustrate that uh, that grievous ment- mental image that you just put in everybody's head. Oh. So, uh, you know, first off, Tim, I love that uh, thought on you know routine and saying that children need routine, but it works for me too. I, I, I think there's so much to be said for that disconnect between children and adult. That's a, that's a human need. You know, we right, just, right. we, we basically just want to uh, kind of put that aside and, and separate ourselves from kids because, you know, we're adults now. And if we want to eat ice cream for dinner, that's what we're going to do. Damn it. Um, but it's, it's, it's tantamount to getting things done. And I, I developed a really bad, well, good at the time routine of writing in the morning. Cause I was working from home for like eight months. Um, and then all of a sudden September rolled around and I had to go back to work. Um, so, you know, I, I can get a little bit of writing in on during lunch. I can get a little bit, uh, in at night, although my brain tends to shut down after eight. Um, but one piece of advice and I know who it came from. It came from Sonora Taylor. I legitimately cannot remember whether it was when we talked to her or whether it was something she said online. But she she said that any work you get done, it could be rereading something uh, that you wrote yesterday and making a you know a change or two. It could be editing, it could be revisions, or it could be straight out writing. Any anything you get done is production. Just because I sat down and didn't bang out a thousand words doesn't mean that I didn't work that day. Doesn't mean that I didn't, you know, make my way a little bit closer to that goal. Sure. I, I say she's right on the money there. Because some days it's, you know, there's getting words on the page in what you're working on. And some days it's just trying to figure out what happens next. And no actually no actual words get written, but it's still, it's still work. It's still, like she said, it's still production. You're still doing something with it. Or making your headway because sometimes it's just it's not always a linear path um so yeah as long as you can get something done um but it's not always the actual writing 
getting worse on the page. Sometimes it's something else. Sometimes, you know, a, a lot of times, uh, if I'm really stuck with a story problem or something, I will go and do a very <clears throat> uh, a medial task, something where uh, my hands are busy, but I, it doesn't, I don't have to think about it, like mowing the lawn or washing the floor. Because um, often with my hands busy, but my brain wandering, I'll figure out what my story problem is, or I'll have some of my better ideas doing that. Cause I, um, it's just how I work, you know, like, like there's that joke about people having good ideas in the shower. It's kind of the same thing. You don't have to think about what you're doing. So your brain is free to like just wander off. And if you're a writer or creative, it'll come back to whatever current thing you're working on. Uh, Einstein did that. He played the violin. He also had a menial task job. Um, I I can't remember what it was, but it didn't require much brain power. And uh, he would just think about his, you know... His equations? Yeah, I was going to say equations, but I'm like, is that the right word? Yeah, it's the right word. Um, Yeah, he thought about his equations while at work. And, you know, like I said, for his breaks, play the violin. He just also happened to uh, play it and attract certain women. He was... It's kind of like Ben Franklin, where he's super smart, but uh, maybe not the most loyal guy. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen, have I, any of you seen uh, Einstein? It's, um, it was a miniseries, I want to say on the History Channel, but it was really interesting. The uh, adult Einstein was played by Geoffrey Rush. Brennan would know him mainly as Captain Barbosa. Um, also, he was in one of my favorite horror movies. So that ties, that is why I'm talking about, obviously, that ties to uh, the horror theme. But he was um, Vincent Price's character in the remake of uh, House on Haunted Hill. Uh, right. Well, it, it it's based on uh, Walter Isaacson's bibliography. Um, he writes about a bunch of geniuses. Einstein's one of them. I mean, Einstein's. Einstein's life was really it was bizarre. I mean, he was a Jewish dude that was in Germany when, like, the worst army ever in history that was after his people. You know, and it's a whole thing. I would look it up. It's very interesting. I'll check it out. That sounds cool. I like how you say out. I've watched everything by the Trailer Park Boys, and I've caught on. <laughs> I've caught on. When they use the word, it's the O is always stretched out. What are you talking about? A boot. I can't say it. I, I wish I it. knew what you meant. I've heard that before. The trailer Park I, I Boys? Obviously, or? I have, no, no, yeah, I love the Trailer Park Boys. But that whole thing <laughs> about the, the pronunciation of the word abouts or outs, I've heard that before, but I, I can't hear it in my own head because I'm speaking it. So, Well, I feel like that with my, I say it's a non existent accent, but then I, uh, talked with people from uh, England and they say that uh, they kind of ask how I pronounce horror. So I say horror. Something like that. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. We, You and I don't notice that we don't say the letter R half the time, especially when it ends a word. <laughs> so, uh, you know, back, back to what we were saying, um, the the whole idea of, uh, you know, going when, when when you hit a point where you're trying to figure out what happens next, you know, when, when you go back and edit instead of adding, you know, I find that it just allows you to kind of go back and live in the story. And 
if you immerse yourself, you're going to be more likely to figure out, you know, make connections and figure out what's going next. I know if I kind of force myself to push the road ahead and I don't know where it's going, I my character ends up like washing the dishes before they leave the house because they don't know what to <laughs> where they're going. Um, right. But, it, you know, it's a necessary task anyway, and it just gives you that excuse to revisit something you've already done and just see if you've missed some kind of clue as to where you're going next i find that an extremely useful tool yeah for sure like or, or sometimes you just need to like it's kind of like uh <clears throat> when you first sit down that cold start can be something hard to you know can be hard to get back up to speed so just reading through the last like uh going back a few pages and reading through that it kind of helps uh get the ball rolling because I, I often find the hardest part is just the initial uh, inertia, like you know, you open up my current project and I'm looking at that blank page, going, "Ah, oh, fuck, I can't do this today. I've I've got no ideas." Um, but that's one way to like just get over that initial hump, like read through what you're just doing, and then you kind of get back into that sense of flow, and you can start up again. You know, I'm trying the Paul. I'm calling it the Paul Tremblay approach with. Uh, it's a YA sci-fi fantasy, so super new subgen or whatever mashup of genres for me. But I'm uh, trying 500 words a day because I heard that's what Tremblay does, and I never try that. My goal is always like 2,000, and right. that was drilled in my head because of uh, Stephen King. I just watched every single interview and documentary and on writing. I just tried to listen to everything and watch everything by him that could. And he said he did 2000 words a day. I'm like, well, he's the King. So let's try it. Um, that often leads to me feeling like I suck. suck. Right, so, right. I don't nail it, but I've noticed that. And this is a going to lean to a question for you guys with the first draft I have uh, for the last eight years, I've practiced one method, write it, expect the shitty first draft and then chip away over and over and over again. Uh, print it out sometimes or a pen of doom, you know, mark it up, uh, transfer it digitally. Um, Lansdale, Brennan, a few other writers have suggested to me maybe going about their way, write uh, 500 words or thought, whatever it is. And then the next day edit that and then write another 500. Brennan, is that, isn't that your approach? I don't know. I got lost when you grouped me in with Lansdale as far as writing advice. <laughs> that yes, that that is typically what I do. So that's the, that he wins the race. That's the approach I think I'm gonna go with next because I keep hearing that it's more efficient and. Well, you know, ultimately, ultimately, like every writer is different, and whatever works for you is fine, is good. Like, it's not a one size fits all kind of uh, job. Um, and I, the, the idea of, of writing 500 words a day, I've heard that from other writers as well. Uh, that way, it's a, you, can, you can get 500 words, like, and you're not going it's, to, it's attainable, and you're not going to beat yourself up at, uh, uh, beat yourself up, uh, oh, sorry, beat yourself up about not getting 2,000 words. You know what I mean? Like, 2,000 words is a lot, and it takes a lot of time a lot of focus time so however you want to do it is fine but setting yourself up say like you like you like you are just 500 words a day you can attain that so you're not later on you're not 
feeling shitty because you didn't get your 2,000 words a day. So whatever works for you is the way to go. It's the perfect way. So Perfect. I agree with that wholeheartedly, yeah. Do you guys have anything else that you want to cover, or can we jump into what are you reading? Actually, I want to uh, I want to send it to Erica real quick because we're talking routine, and because you know this is where I kind of started out before I tried my hand at writing. I understand that reviewing and trying to squeeze all of those freaking books in uh, and get a review out on time is basically a, a part time job, if not a second full time job. So, Erica, how how do you uh, manage that routine? Yeah, so I've only been blogging now for I think four years or so, three or four years. Um, so I started out just like totally gung ho. I was reading like every genre that I felt interested in. So there's still quite a few places where my blog I promote it as like from anything from like children's to horror. But that's not necessarily true anymore because I mainly focus in on horror, which is definitely my favorite genre. You know, every once in a while I'll bring in something else, but. I have a lot of spreadsheets personally, so ah. <laughs> that works really well for me just because I like seeing everything tracked and I like to be able to add links and, you know, say if a book that I've accepted, and I, I call them honest reviews, but all of my reviews are honest, so I got to change that, but I'll track like, you know, when somebody sent it to me, what they sent me, if it's like an ebook copy or a physical copy just to keep track of that and then the publication date, um, you guys may have seen it on Twitter, but I thought I turned my form off <laughs> a year <Yeah>. ago, <laughs> and I didn't. So I had 480-something reviews requests in there that I, I just, did see that. That was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I saw that, and I just, like, sat there for a minute and was like, are you kidding me? Because <laughs> I respond to every single incoming request because right. I, I just feel like that's the polite thing to do. So, you know, every once in a while, it's, I'm very clear on my blog that the only thing I don't read is erotica, and I'll get erotica review requests, and I'm just like, okay, you, I'm not responding to. <laughs> but for everybody else, I try to respond, so now I'm really backed up, but just from, like, the organization standpoint, I try not to overextend myself, so I only accept so many per month, because I still want to read the books that I want to read, and... I want to have like openings for like somebody that I worked with before. If they're like, Hey, I'm about to publish this book. Like, can you give this an early read? I want to be able to do that and not be too backed up. So like Brennan said, it, it is definitely like a second <laughs> job. And for the last three years, I've actually had two jobs running at the same time. I've worked Ooh. a full-time job and a part-time job. So to do my blog on top of that, that was a lot. And I really had to cut back because I, I hate saying no. I want to give every book a chance, but I've really kind of tailored what I accept versus what I don't. So that's really helpful. But for me, it's mostly just sticking to keeping it fun. If I'm not having fun with it, I'm going to stop. So with the whole like, you know, not pushing through to finish a book that I'm not enjoying, I don't I don't do that anymore. I don't force myself to do it. And when I respond to people that have sent me their work, I always tread very carefully because I don't want to make them upset or anything like that. But I'll just say like, hey, this unfortunately isn't working for me. I'd rather not put it on my blog because I don't want to say anything negative, especially if it's a book that only has like two reviews so far or something like that. So that's been really helpful. And everyone's really understanding about stuff like that, too. So it's that's also nice. Tell you something. If you ever get. 
I was going to say, if you ever get somebody who's not understanding, you can just forward it to Pat. He will take care of it. <laughs> yep. Uh, I, I, got, said, I, got no, I got no problem telling someone to fuck off and don't be a dick. Yeah, I sent Pat an example. I had one author that told me that I was wrong about his book, and I was just like, <laughs> oh, sir, no. <laughs> wrong approach. Look, I'm, I'm not hiding the fact that I'm insecure as fuck, but I think everyone is. I, I don't care what anyone says. I don't believe them. Everyone's insecure about something. But here's the thing. You don't be a dick to people that are, you know, giving you their time for free. Yeah, for sure. Over an opinion. Like, get over it, you sensitive little bitch. (laughs) I'm very strong. Look, I I formed my opinion. I've listened to a lot of people. I've had shitloads of rejections. It's not easy. If you want to be a writer with a readership, it's fucking hard, but it's worth it. You got to listen to people and take constructive criticism. So Brian Keene suggested to me write no stick it on your computer somewhere do that erica (laughs) yeah i i listened to that episode and i was like oh man they're they're talking to me and (laughs) the whole feeling like you need to be productive i'm happy to hear that you guys all take breaks and you kind of structure your time so you don't like force yourself to write if you're not feeling it um i actually had a sign that used to be behind me and it said like rest is a productive activity because i would forget Uh that like you do need to rest. You need that time. And there's a a term for what you guys were talking about with like giving your brain a break. Um, I listened to a whole podcast about it, but I think they were saying like, you need to give your brain space or something like that, but basically to do something else and just, you know, not focus on the one thing you're trying to figure out and your brain's just going to do it for you. Yeah. So stuff like that's really interesting, but definitely making sure to rest is <laughs> really important, especially with the state of the world today too. Like, yeah. I don't think a lot of people, obviously everyone understands what's going on is crazy and it just seems to be getting more crazy every day. But, you know, that really weighs on you, whether you're like conscious of it or not. So, you know, being gentle and not forcing things is a good lesson that I hope everyone takes away. Well, we are a battery. Uh, ba- I can't talk. We are a battery. You know, you got to recharge. Uh, otherwise, you're going to drain one way or another. Um, I just want to add on to the little review thing. Like me and Brandon, we got our own thing going on um, with the website. And like Erica or uh, Cassie are, it's basically just us and, and guest hosts, which are just some two right now. Or Mary Sarah and Giovanni, if she wanted to. <laughs> but, uh, we don't have any open, you know, open inquiries or whatever, because that's we're not focused on that. We're focused on like Tim's book or other guests uh, who are on the show. But last year when I uh, ran the review platform Deadhead Reviews, it uh, I don't know. It was I ran a team. I ran you know an open call. Um, there was a lot of strange emails, like one PR lady in charge of some film company that clearly didn't read anything is a book of an email. And I'm like, I sent back a kind message. I'm like, Oh, that just go over the guidelines and please follow that. Never got a response later on, got another long book of an email. So that's a frustrating, but I don't know. I guess you get it with the, uh, with that type of blog. People don't read. So do you guys want to move on to what are you reading? After, sure. after people don't read, that's a hell of a segue. <laughs> it's almost like I wrote that segue. <laughs> so, uh, Tim, what are you reading? Um, at the moment, I'm reading uh, 
She Said Destroy by Nadia Bulkin. Ooh. Uh, which is a new author to me. Uh, I saw Haley Piper recommending it to somebody and I tried it out. And um, she's a phenomenal writer. I'm really, it's a book of short stories. Uh, and I'm really liking her stuff. I'm, I'm now a Nadia Bulkin fan. Um, other than that, I, I usually have like at least three books on the go, like a couple of uh, fiction books. And a nonfiction, but right now it's just that and a, a stack of comic books beside my bed that I'm, nice. that I'm reading. How about you guys? Erica. Yeah, I'm actually not between books for the first time. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading. I'm give you the thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm reading Cradleland of Parasites by Sarah Tan- Tantlinger. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, I. I'm really bad with poetry. Most of the time it goes over my head. So I'm trying to pick up more of that to get more into it. Cause I really, I do enjoy it when I understand it. So, <laughs> so far I'm loving this collection, but it's also really creepy. Cause it's about like the black death and like plagues and sickness. Right. And I'm just like, Oh boy. So coming off of your book and then reading this one, I was just like, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> so I need something a little bit lighter after this, <laughs> but we'll see where it goes. Is that why you picked her for your blurb? We didn't talk about that, but Sarah did a blurb. She's on the cover. She did. <coughs> and it says, a marvelous work of historical horror with unexpected turns that are executed exponentially. What a journey. And she is uh, probably best known for her stuff on H.H. Holmes, right. as well as, like Erica just talked about, uh, plague-related issues. So that totally covers and makes sense why she did your book. What? Before Brendan and I talk about what we're reading, why why'd you go with uh, Sarah? Uh, well, um, I actually didn't. That was uh, Sam's choice. Sam okay, reached out to uh, other authors for blurring, um, but I think the Cradle and pa- the Parasites, that being about the Black Death, and uh, the one covering H.H. Uh, H. Holmes because that was historical. I think that may have been why. Uh, Sam reached out to Sarah to uh, to blurb the book, and I'm completely uh, very grateful for the blurb that she gave. And I've heard nothing gr- but great things about the Cradle and of Parasites. I'm gonna I need to put that on my TBR. Sarah, I don't think would ever brag about this again, lack for a better word. But uh, Brennan and I wanted to do something nice for Cassie, so one of the things that we did was got in touch with Sarah and. Cassie's a huge fan of Sarah so I was like hey uh, she hasn't read this book or whatever and long story short she sent a uh, signed book of I think the only book that Cassie doesn't have is Sarah's book and um, also uh, original poetry to her Um, she's awesome she's super nice anyone uh, looking for you know a poet that writes in horror pretty much exclusively I think that me and Erica and Brennan and Tim would suggest her. So, Brennan, what are you reading? I am in the middle of a bunch of things, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna plug Ronald Kelly's Fear, which I'm about a hundred pages into right now. It's awesome. It's really it's got that like '80s slash '90s coming of age, uh, it or ghoul or it's got that feel to it. And, you know, whenever you pick up like a door, a doorstop or that's like a 500 page book uh, fear is that has that 
I don't know, nostalgia, I guess. Um, you can't go wrong. It's, you know, it's, it's one of those, you just keep the pages turning. I'm loving it so far. Are your pages yellowed? Mine are. Yes. That's coming. It comes from being a nineties paperback. I think <laughs> stock, stock yellow pages. Yeah. Okay. Patrick, I thought there were, you. it's, it's I thought, your turn, sir. I thought there were more books <laughs> that you're going to write off. Yes. Yeah, so no, I'm going to stick with one. So we're not here all night. <laughs> I'll just do three. Rattling off fear as well. Um, it's pretty much what Brian said. It's pretty fun. It's uh, Ronald Kelly's magnum opus, and um, it me and him got the zebra copy. There's another copy, but I don't know about him. I prefer this one. It's way creepier than the uh, lizard that is. Um, well, that's not my favorite. So <laughs> the other one I'm reading for audio listeners. I'm holding a book of Christopher Pike's The Eternal Enemy. I'm actually starting that tonight when we're done recording to uh, jump on the Pipecast in a couple days. And then I'm listening halfway through the audio version of uh, Stephen Graham Jones's The Only Good Indians. I got to the part where it's the part, Brennan. I don't know if you... I don't know if Erica and Tim's read it or Mm -hmm. listen. I got to the part where you're like, audio (laughs) listeners, my eyes went very wide. It's... uh, it flips the script on its ass. So that's all I'll say about it. Yeah, I can see why everyone loves uh, Stephen Graham Jones. Hell of a writer. That's a great um, book. There's still four, three and a half hours left. I'm like, gee, whoa. <laughs> Where's this taking me? Uh, what are you currently working on, Tim? Uh, I'm working on another uh, volume in my Spook Show series. Um, and that's about it. I'm hoping to have that, have that out in the spring. Excellent. And uh, where can people follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Tim McGregor one and uh, I have a website, Tim McGregor author. That's basically about it. Fantastic. Now, before we say good night, Erica, is there anything that you want to cover before we go? Or can you tell us where people can follow you? Oh, sure. Um, I do have a Facebook page for my book blog, but I'm thinking about, getting rid of that because i just don't (laughs) like facebook Uh, i'm on (laughs) twitter as just erica robin um fuck you zuckerberg (laughs) (laughs) um and then i'm also on instagram as um, my book account is at erica robin reads and that's robin with a y not an i i know that confuses people every now and then (laughs) but those are my two main platforms for sure nice brennan any final thoughts or final words no Tim, how about you, sir? No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. How about you, Erica? Actually, I probably should have said I have a blog, too. I know we kind of talked about that <laughs> earlier, but I skipped over it. But that's also just Erica Robin reads. <laughs> Robin with a Y, Erica with an I. I have no final words besides, uh, Tim, we appreciate your time. It's almost been an hour and 40 minutes. Erica, thank you for joining us to, again today. Hey, probably is... Interesting to think of this. The first two podcasts Tim does, he does with two guys and a girl. Uh, Ink Heist with Shane and Rich and Laurel, us with uh, me, Brennan, and Erica. It's pretty funny. Um, Listeners, thank you for joining us. The next episode will be in a few days on Thursday with Jennifer Soucy. I think Stoucy? Soucy? Fuck. I I believe it's Soucy. Soucy. Son of a bitch. Probably should get that right before we talk about it. Edit that. You know, I'm not. 
I'm going to leave my foolishness for uh, everyone to hear. Shame, shame. So we are going to be talking to Jennifer in four days, three days, something like that. Math is hard. And uh, we are looking towards talking to her about Clementine's Awakening. And uh, after that, we got a couple more guests this month. Jared Barbie of Death's Head Press and Todd Kiesling. And to start off March with uh, Ellen Datlow. So stay tuned. Thank you, as always, for listening to us. And have a good one. Deadhead space.